What a joy and privilege it is for me to share the Word of God with y'all today. It's been six and a half years since I sat in your seat as a student, and those years have flown by. Looking back, I remember so many things. The first thing I think of is singing and singing seminarians, and you all look a lot better than we did. We had pea green robes, and they were not that attractive, so y'all look great. But I remember times at this altar that were so meaningful, and this morning I came in here to pray a little while, and that window is so powerful. Um, I lived in Ely Mac, an old dorm that was right beside the, um, right beside actually Estes. Lived on the third floor on this very end, so I could see that window out of my bedroom. Uh, actually, when I was laying in bed, and it was just so meaningful to think of Jesus and all of his greatness and capacities. I remember academic all-nighters, dorm life, prayer groups, ichthus, and kairos lessons that will last a lifetime. I wish I could stand before you today and say that my three years at Asbury were the best years of my life, but I can't. <laughs> they weren't. But I can say that my three years at Asbury were the best years for my life, not of my life, but for my life. God used this small, spirit-filled community to break through a shell of people-pleasing performance and self-sufficiency and to birth in me an identity in him alone. Notice I used the words to break and to birth. That's what happened. And the breaking began the very first night I was in Wilmore when I broke my foot at the singles orientation games. <laughs> now crutches, they destroy any form of self-sufficiency. People I didn't know literally carried me to a car to take me to the hospital. They had to help me through the cafeteria line, carry my book bag, and be patient as I climbed the stairs up to my dorm room. The old dorm did not have an elevator. The breaking of my bones, <laughs> I believe this. You don't, oh, that's right, you don't. Well, we need to work on that, don't we? <laughs> Especially if you break your feet, okay on the agenda for after lunch. Um, but I'll always believe that the breaking of my bones was a prophetic message for what the Lord was going to do in my heart and spirit. And I use the word to birth because I'm still a work in progress. But God did use community life and classes to forge in my character the concept that I live for an audience of one, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, he is able to make all grace abound to us. My journey from breaking to birthing was very painful. Not the best of my life, but the best for my life. And the best preparation for ministry I ever received. During the first semester, a professor told us that when we enter ministry, the only thing we really have to offer is our inner selves the truth and love living within us. We can only hide behind a sense of humor, a keen intellect or leadership charisma for so long. Authenticity and depth in Jesus is what it really takes. You've all heard the statement, we teach what we know, but we reproduce who we are. Now this is important. The body of Christ is crying out for ministers and spouses who, with identities grounded in him and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they live for an audience of one. 
The one thing I wish someone would have told me when I was a student at Asbury is that ministry is going to be a lot tougher than you think that it is. The Fuller Institute conducted a survey over the last 10 years of pastors, and they reported this. 50% of pastors felt unable to meet the needs of the job. 90% felt they were inadequately trained to cope with ministry demands. 80% believed the pastoral ministry affected their families negatively. 75% reported a significant stress-related crisis sometime in their ministry. And 70% say they have a lower self-esteem now than when they started out. When you are falsely accused, when leaders leave your church saying that they're not being fed and they no longer like the music, when your spouse is lonely, and when your kids feel pressure, you will understand these statistics. No certificate or degree on the wall will make the mark. Only an identity grounded in Jesus alone will empower us to persevere in ministry with integrity and effectiveness. Our Bible reading presents a picture of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, living for an audience of one. Now, if we're honest, when this scripture was read, probably some of you thought, not that scripture again. All I'm going to do is feel, I'll leave here and feel guilty uh, for not praying enough, for being too busy. I'll leave here with a lot of oughts and shoulds, but no real insight for change. For others of us who prefer the quiet, prayerful life, our spiritual pride soared, as our strength is supposedly the better part. In popular thought, not correct biblical exegesis, this passage is tagged as the battle between type A and type B, the cleric and the melancholy, the productive and the contemplative. That's how I was taught this passage. I cannot count the number of times my mom said in a huff, well, Mary better be thankful, because if there weren't any Marthas doing the work, there wouldn't get to be any Marys. <laughs> and another one of her favorite phrases, you may know it, is, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. That's right. On her defense, I will always treasure the strong work ethic she instilled in me. But what is Jesus getting at when he confronts Martha, only one thing is needed, and commends Mary. She has chosen what is better. Let's get a handle on this scripture and see what's really going on. Let's set Mary aside and just focus on Martha for the first couple minutes. She gets pegged as controlling, self-seeking, and hardworking. But is she really self-seeking if she does have Jesus' nutritional needs in mind? And remember, there were probably 100 disciples with him. Who can blame her for wanting to prepare the finest meal for her most treasured guest? Scholars suggest several reasons for Martha's behavior. She didn't fully understand grace, so works righteousness erupted so she would impress Jesus. She was jealous of all the attention um, Jesus was giving Mary. Her anxiety as a hostess was her demise. Her heart was right, but the manner of her service was not um, correct in Jesus' eyes. We can assume that serving was not the problem because Luke always places high value on service. And we do know that the, that the rebuke was very gentle. Whenever Jesus repeated a name twice in the Gospels, 
when he would say, Simon, Simon, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Martha, Martha. It was always in a gentle, loving manner. And let me warn you, and you've probably experienced before, if you want to pursue holiness, you'll probably hear your name in that fashion too. I've heard Karen, Karen more times than I would even want to admit. Martha missed the mark in offering the type of hospitality that Jesus needed. She obeyed the expectations of her culture by preparing food. But if she would have sat at Jesus' feet, Jesus had so much more for her, and he wanted so much more from her. Her scattered focus kept her from a solid, grounded peace. That's Martha. Now let's look at Mary. The Hebrew culture, which you all know, really devalued and marginalized women. Rabbi Eliezer said, better burn the Torah than teach it to women. <laughs> Females were only privileged to study the laws regarding ceremonial cleanliness and food preparation. Even though Mary is often described as quiet, passive, and even lazy, this is not true. Mary displayed incredible courage to defy societal pressures to sit at Jesus' feet, a place only reserved for disciples. She exhibited an identity grounded in her master, welcomed Jesus with her full attention, which was the type of hospitality he desired, and was commended for choosing the better part. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, learning of his word, and living for an audience of one, despite the complaint and scorn of others. So there we have it, Martha and Mary. And now let's think back to those statistics a minute. When I look at you, and I know you look at each other, it's hard to believe that nine out of 10 of us will feel unprepared for all that we're going to face. My question today is, what could make us the one in 10? What could make us the one in 10 that's prepared and we wouldn't be here if we didn't want to advance the kingdom of God. I know that's your heart, that's my heart. I really believe that the key is what Jesus calls the better part in Mary and what we see so powerfully portrayed in her position at the feet of Jesus. Students, I wanna say this to you. Could you make a commitment before you leave this place that every sermon you preach, every counsel you give, Every decision you make, be from that position with an identity in Jesus Christ alone. Some of you may be wondering, what is identity, Karen? It's the essence of your being, the resting place of your soul. I'm sure you've heard it said, who you are when nobody's looking, and the part of you that only you and God see. It's what gave Mary the courage to defy cultural expectations and the opinions of all those present in order to sit at Jesus' feet. The world values us and deems us worthy by our physical appearance, by our intelligence, our finances, uh, positions, titles, and degrees. And on top of that, for pastors, our preaching ability, our leadership charisma, and our appointments. Christians, and yes, Christian ministers, are often crippled as much from misplaced identities as non-Christians. God speaks through Jeremiah. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength. 
But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence comes from him. Robert McGee expands this scripture when he describes that Satan's lie is that my worth equals my performance plus the opinions of others. That's Satan's lie. That my worth equals my performance plus the opinions of others. But God's truth is that my worth equals what God said and what Jesus did. What God said and what Jesus did. What did God say? I knit you together in your mother's womb. I take great delight over you. I quiet you in my love and I dance over you with singing. You are my workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works before the foundation of the earth. And what did Jesus do? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to, he, to him through the death of his son. During my senior year at Asbury, when the painful journey from breaking to birthing reached a climax, the Lord led me to some readings by Egyptian monks who would march into a parade, climb into a chariot, point into the face of the emperors, confronting their injustice, fearless at their own execution because their identity in Christ was so strong. These two stories are pivotal to my recovery and remind me of Mary. A brother came to see Abba Macarius, the Egyptian, and said to him, Abba, give me a word that I may be saved. So the Abba said, go to the cemetery and abuse the dead. So the brother went to the cemetery, threw stones at the grave sites, and cast verbal assaults. Then he returned to his elder monk and told him about it. Did they say anything to you, the Abba said? No. Well, then go back tomorrow and praise them. So the young monk went back to the grave sites. He talked to the dead. He called them apostles, saints, and righteous men. Then he went back to tell his Abba about it. The elder monk said to him, did they answer you? And he said, no. The Abba said to him, you know you insulted them, and they did not respond and you complimented them, and they did not respond. You now know how to be saved. Like them, you must die to scorn and praise. Abba Abalonius said, if a person does not say in his or her own heart, only myself, there is only myself and God, that person will not gain peace. Only myself and God died to scorn and praise, have become Christian mantras to me. Praise can be as toxic as scorn. When people praise us, there is great danger that we will begin to, to think highly of our skills and abilities and unconsciously build our identity around those strengths instead of God alone. Soon we'll fortify those areas, compare those areas, um, find ways to let those areas shine, and at the point of burnout from trying to protect them, we'll hear like Martha, only one thing is needed. Instead of basing our identity on opinions and external circumstances, we need to look inward where Jesus Christ resides and where his truth speaks to us. When you serve the church, a parachurch ministry, or, uh, or the, even in the academy, 
Others will try and tell you who you are, what you should do, what you should value, how you should spend your time. Florida State University conducted a survey this year of 2,500 pastors to determine what the highest stress, stress points were for the pastors. Time and boundaries were number one and number two. One of the benefits of an identity in Christ is there, there, we have greater freedom in allocating our time and setting boundaries because we listen to the voice of one. While reading the other day, I was amazed to find out that scientists say that we hear 20,000 different voices in our head. But Jesus, said, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. They know me and they follow me. Grounded in Christ, sitting at his feet, we'll hear his voice over the rest. Sometimes our own wants and desires will compete for us to hear God's voice. And I would love to have time to tell you more of my story, but um, you are looking at a very achievement-oriented person. But at the end of my senior year, God began to make it so clear to me that I was to surrender ordination and to, um, to marry my husband, which is the greatest thing I ever did in my life, but to join him in ministry and to not be in official ministry capacity. And God is so faithful. I see joy in my classmates that are fully ordained, and I also find incredible joy because I was faithful to his voice in what I was to do, regardless of what other people expected. And so hearing his voice is so powerful when our identity is in Christ. Another benefit of living for the audience of one is integrity. If our identity is weak, we may be intimidated by the controlling and powerful people in our ministries, and we may cave in to their pressures even if we know that it's not God's best. Integrity, which is congruence between our private life and our public life, is under rampant attack in the clergy today. The Fuller Institute study revealed that 37% of pastors confessed having been involved in inappropriate sexual behavior with someone in their church, 37%. And we must be careful not to think that we are immune. You've all heard of Gordon McDonald, former president of InterVarsity, a pastor, um, author of Ordering Your Private World, and many outstanding books. Two years before his affair and in a magazine interview, they asked him, what do you feel is the greatest strength of your ministry? And he said, my marriage. And now he begs pastors to not put any confidence in a perceived strength and to seek accountability. Asbury, there is such strength in the caliber of our community. But if we feel that we are a citadel of holiness, are we not the most vulnerable? 70% of pastors do not have someone they consider a close friend, which translates into no accountability. But again, if our identity is in Christ, we will look for and search out ways to, for accountability because we have nothing to hide, nothing to prove, and nothing to lose. My friend Jan Johnson, author of Living a Purposeful Life, created a cadre of questions to help us discover the hidden agenda of our soul. These could be worth jotting down, and even more, worth 
taking some time out to listen to God and to hear his voice, my guess is that the answers to these questions will be revolutionary. Number one, am I serving to impress anyone? Am I serving to impress anyone? Number two, am I serving to receive external rewards? Number three, is my service affected by moods and whims, my own as well as others? Martha could use some work on that one. Number four, am I using this service to feel good about myself? And number five, am I using this service to muff muffle God's voice demanding that I change? These questions always uncover needed growth areas in my life. But as the Lord continues to reveal my weaknesses, I'm less discouraged because I know that the journey to healing will bring greater freedom and greater fulfillment in Him. So there we have it. Identity. The benefits of clarity and integrity. Like Mary, the better part. How do we grow in identity and live for an audience of one? I wish I had all the answers, but I don't. But I have three suggestions that have been very helpful in my own journey. First, face your fears. Dr. Brill Dinkins told our Servant as Pastoral Care class, face your darkness and it will no longer have dominion. We don't make it this far in life without accumulating baggage, the darkness in our life. Everyone's pain is different and our healing will be too. But stop and think with me about this for a moment. Most of us will never again be in an environment with so many faculty, staff, pastors, and resources that will help us grow and help us become all that God wants us to do. Start by sharing with a trusted friend or mentor that will listen and pray to you, pray with you. I wish that I could say that this journey is easy, but it's not. It's very painful. During, my, um, during the hardest time of my breaking at Asbury, I can vividly remember the only way I got out of bed from my Orlean House dorm room was to quote this scripture. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope will not disappoint us. A good compliment was paid me recently. Someone said, Karen, you know how to reach out for help. And I thought it's probably because I've needed so much of it. But the truth is, face your fears and reach out for help. Number two, second, surrender your script. Surrender your script. Every life is worth a novel. Many of our disappointments and struggles occur from dissatisfaction with our storyline. We compare our script to others even when God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And Romans tells us that God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. It saddens the Lord whenever we try to be more than we are, less than we are, or other than we are. I would grieve if our precious son Luke, and this one on the way, grow up feeling disappointed in who they are and always wanting to be someone else. Yet we can so easily fall prey to the same trap, 
comparing academic abilities, relationships, and later on, church growth patterns or publishing abilities. We must kill comparison. Many times I have visualized loosening the, loosening the grip on the pen of my life story and handing that pen to Jesus for his authorship. He is trustworthy. Surrender your script. And finally, grow in grace. I grew up in the Lutheran church, so grace, being justified by faith alone, was drilled in me from a young age. But still, something inside of me was working so hard to please and appease God. If I studied more, prayed more, fasted more, loved more, maybe then God would anoint and bless me. But if there's anything true that we know about the Christian life, it's this. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more. And there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. God doesn't want to continually evaluate us. He wants to enjoy us. Our journey from grace is head knowledge to heart understanding will be different for all of us. Some of us will experience watershed moments. And for the rest of us, it'll be a long obedience in the same direction. But you'll always be thankful for putting growing in grace on the top of your prayer list. John 12 records Mary's final uninhibited act of devotion. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped and <clears throat> excuse me and wiped his feet with her hair. This pure nard cost about a year's salary. And letting her hair down in public was a scandalous act as Jewish women took pride in only allowing their husbands to see their hair. But because Christ mattered, she let down her hair against the conventions of society and what other people might think. She did receive Judas's scorn, but Jesus made a promise involving Mary in Matthew. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What a picture of God's economy. Mary, who lived faithfully for an audience of one, was given the world as an audience. Please hear me now. Students, I'm talking to you straight from my heart. As a member of the board, I'm humbled to chair the Community Life Committee which works hard to make possible ways for your um, growth and wholeness as a minister in Christ, which hopefully has been communicated throughout this message. I believe I express the common heart of the board and speak with one voice when I say, if these years are not the best years of your life, we pray ever so fervently for each one of you that these years would be the best years of your life. The greatest thing that could happen to you at Asbury would be for the Holy Spirit to gently reveal to you areas of insecurity and brokenness and for you to willingly surrender no matter how painful to his healing power. When your identity is fully established in God alone, then you can use your academic knowledge and your leadership skills to impact the kingdom. I'm a poster child 
of that type of transformation. It's true. You will either work out your issues now or be a statistic later. Sometimes when we are so exhausted and so weary and so worn out, David and I just want to pack Luke up and escape to Disney World. And teetering on the edge of the statistics, though, we get quiet and we hear God's voice saying, Karen, you're mine, nobody else's. David, you're my much-loved son. And all the joy and courage we need, we find in serving an audience of one. Is there anybody here in this room today that wants to mark November 13, 2001 as a day when approval addiction took a major hit in your life? When you remember that you chose to, to seek an identity in Christ alone, no matter what the cost, that you surrendered your life script to the author, Jesus Christ, I'd love to pray with you. Don't wait. This journey takes a lot of time. And let God use every moment of your time at Asbury for this purifying and preparing work.